gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media, or at least that's what they want you to believe. Um, today we have uh, a return, very popular guest, very timely guest, um, who uh, has been very busy for the last 18 months or so, and, uh, um, and you'll understand why in a second. We have Joseph Uzinski back. He is an expert. He's a political science political scientist, right? Yes, yes, political scientist. But but you've 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 made these strange, some might say, not uncoincidental uh, <laughs> decision <laughs> to be an expert on conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory mongering. Not so much like the details of the actual conspiracy theories, but their their prevalence, their use, their abuse, and all the rest. And given events of late, I thought it'd be fun to have you back on. So welcome back to The Remnant. Well, it's my pleasure to be back. So um, this, we were talking in the green room, this is, this is, this is your busy season, right? Uh, this is sort of like for, for pimps, Fleet Week is the busy season. And for you, it's been like um, a, uh, or brothels, I should say. But uh, for you, it's, um, it's been sort of nonstop for a while now, right? It's been rough. Yeah, so since 2015, the topic of conspiracy theory has really taken off in the media, but in particular in the last year, because you had the confluence of COVID, the 2020 election, and then voter fraud, and now in 2021, we have the um, insurrection, or whatever that was. So I, I tallied up all the interviews I did in 2020, and it was like 260 plus interviews with journalists, and I think I've already passed the 30 mark for for uh, January and February of this year. So it's something that journalists are, are thinking about. Right. And, and just to put it in context, I, I started a uh, Google alert on the term conspiracy theory about a decade ago. And I, I would get back every article written with the term conspiracy theory in it every night. And it used to be four or five articles Monday through Friday and nothing on the weekends. And since 2015, it's been between 50 and 100 every single night consistently for the last six years so we're definitely thinking about the topic do you have like a grad student who actually has to go through and look at all of them or do you because that's a lot of things to look at you know to keep abreast of no um i have a team that i'm working with and you know when when the data sets get that big um you you can't really rely on people just manually reading it um at that point you have to start going to um you know automated methods for seeing what you know what's going on. So I assume it's also like ne- like when you do a Lexis Nexus search, you get seventy five versions of the same article sometimes. So there's probably a lot of you know redundancy in all of it too. All right. So um um I highly recommend that listeners go back and listen to the first podcast that we did together. But I'm going to cover some of the same ground just because we have a lot more new listeners these days and all the rest. Other than the obvious answer of Donald Trump, um, do you have a overarching theory about why conspiracy theories have why this happened in 2015? Why, you know, f- for you professionally, it was sort of before 2015 and after 2015 in terms of how busy you got? What sparked all of it? 
Yeah, I think the answer is largely Trump. And then the other answer would be Brexit on the other side. And then in some other countries, you have some ruling parties that were using a lot of conspiracy theories too. But essentially what happened was, uh, I, I mean, conspiracy coverage up until that time was really about some particular theory, right? So during the Bush administration, it was 9-11 truth. You know, why do people believe this? And then why do people think Obama's birth certificate was faked? When Trump showed up, it was just a barrage of conspiracy theories. So, and at that point, they were at the highest levels of government. You had a presidential candidate doing it and then a president. So journalists had to cover what he was saying. And furthermore, they had to cover conspiracy theory as a topic unto itself. Yeah. So I, I think it'll take a few years for it to calm down because we're still in the wake of the Trump effect. Um, right. But once it does, we could, you know, um, the topic will recede um, into the um, abyss, <laughs> hopefully, and I'll get a few <laughs> less calls. But but but, but you got to imagine for the next four years, there are going to be battles over this because it's not just, you know, what did Trump do in terms of getting people jacked up on conspiracy theories? But what is Biden going to do in terms of trying to fight conspiracy theories and misinformation? What's Congress going to do in terms of internet regulation to address these problems? Because those are going to create battles of their own, and that those ideas are going to get a lot of coverage. Yeah, I should say, I mean, just in the, the fairness and balance point, one other reason why Trump ignited a lot of conspiracy theory you know, talk was the Russian collusion stuff elicited charges from his defenders of that's a crazy conspiracy theory. So it wasn't just once he pushed out there as bad as all those were, there was also the sort of counter punching from his defenders. Who I, I was not one of, um, who were saying it's MSNBC that's bought into mm. conspiracy theories. And all that, well, right? well, I mean, well, I would actually agree with some of that too, but, it, but that was going to be natural because conspiracy theories are for losers. And we always expect the losing party to think they were cheated. And that, you know, that's the same in 2021 as it was in 2017. I mean, Democrats were upset and they wanted a boogeyman. So it was Trump conspired with Russia to steal the election. Um, and a lot of, they engaged in a lot of conspiracy theorizing that went, that went way beyond the available evidence. So, uh, I, I mean, the left, you know, every time a Democrat comes in, into the White House, they all of a sudden get amnesia about all the conspiracy theories they were engaging in during the Republican administration. Right. right? So, right. so they spent the Bush administration accusing him of killing 3,000 of his own people on 9-11. And then right. when Republicans said Obama faked his birth certificate, all of a sudden Democrats were like, how dare you engage in conspiracy theories? We would right, never right, do right. that. <laughs> like, what are you talking right. about? <laughs> Right. I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, I always thought the funny thing about the 9-11 truther stuff was that they accused Bush of doing this heinous crime of murdering 3,000 Americans. But by implication, they were also accusing him of being competent enough to do it, <laughs> <laughs> which conflicted with everything else that they said about the guy, which was that he was an incompetent boob and they didn't know what he was doing. But on this one thing, he really just nailed public policy perfectly. Um I, you, you said this, you said it on the last one too. Um, I know you've, you've written it before, but for um, listeners, you, you mean something specific when you say conspiracy theories are for losers, right? I mean, why don't you explain that? So I, I, I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean it descriptively, but even with the caveat, 
conspiracy theorists don't like when I say it. Um, and I have an email inbox to prove it. Um, but, you know, we see this now. I mean, you've got upwards of 80 percent of Republicans thinking that the election was rigged against them. I mean, who complains after a sports game? It's not the winners. To them, the refs were right. hunky-dory. Everything worked out right, as it should be. But it's the losers who complain. They were cheated. No one wants to look in the mirror and say, geez, you know, we didn't, you know, we're not that good. We got beat. The, the other team outplayed us. Same in politics. No one wants to say, gee, you know, we didn't get out and mobilize the vote as much as we should have. We didn't pick that good of a candidate. Our issue positions aren't that great. Um, it's much easier to say we were cheated than it is to say we just got beat because we're not that great. Right. But I mean, like, how does that, how does conspiracy theories are for losers apply to um, belief that uh, the Rothschilds were uh, founding investors in the space laser <laughs> um, or how, how does it apply to people who believe in all the stuff at all the stuff about Roswell and aliens being covered up? Uh, are they losers in a social, like a status class anxiety sense or is there something else going on? So when we developed the conspiracy theories are for losers theory, it was based largely on partisan competition. So we were looking at who's getting accused of what over time. And what we found was that, you know, when Republicans were in power, it was Republicans who were getting accused most prominently by Democrats and vice versa. So whoever holds power is really the lightning rod for the, for the prominent conspiracy accusations. And if you think about that over the last few decades, that's what we've seen. I mean, when Clinton was in office, you know, he was engaged in all sorts of subterfuge and they were killing people. And then Bush came in, he did 9-11 and Halliburton and War for Oil and da-da-da. When Obama came in, it was he's a Muslim and a communist and he faked his birth certificate. And then Trump is a Russian agent and he worked with Putin and da-da-da. So the prominent conspiracy theories that we're talking about at any time accuse the insiders and the winners mm -hmm. by the losers and the outsiders. Now, if you step outside of that partisan competition and think about the more non-partisan conspiracy theories like NASA faked the moon landing or um, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers are up to something, there it becomes less about losing in an immediate sense mm -hmm. and more about seeing yourself as an outsider against an insider establishment. Um, so in that sense, the theory still applies, but it's, it, but it's not so much about losing an election right. or losing a balance of power. It's about being on the outside of establishment power. So, um, not to get all too philosophical here, but, um, in other contexts, I'm a big, I'm, you know, there's this argument, there are these arguments made by the philosopher Eric Vogelin, there's, or Vogelin, there's um, Michael Burley, a historian, um, that big chunks of our politics are really um, uh, they're really placeholders or Potemkin facades for religion in a certain sense, or the religious part of our brain. Um, and, you know, Jonathan Haidt gets into some of this stuff with notions of the sacred and how much it, 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 it intrudes on our politics between sort of hygiene, political hygiene and outsiders and all these kinds of things. And um, I'm very sympathetic to some of these things. I think they can be overblown because it's so non-falsifiable. 
but at at the same time, I start looking at things like QAnon and some of these stories you hear about people who had to break out of QAnon and some of the quotes you hear from people in these man on the street interviews where, you know, they say, you know, what are we going to believe in next? You know, they want to know the next article of their faith. Um, is there, is there evidence one way or the other that the increasing secularization of society, the sort of sense that the normal religious frameworks that give us a sense of meaning and belonging are going away. And so some of these conspiracy theories are kind of sneaking in mimetically to take up that place of our brains, or is this just all so much literary nonsense? It could be, but if I was to turn that into a falsifiable, testable hypothesis, uh -huh. then what we would expect as secularization was going on, we would expect conspiracy beliefs to go up. Mm -hmm. And we're not finding that. Mm -hmm. So with conspiracy beliefs, whether it's beliefs in individual theories or it's the general mentality to see the world as the product of conspiracies, those are, have been pretty stable over the last decade. And some conspiracy theories that have been pulled on for decades prior are either fairly stable or in many instances going down. So you're saying just as a, and this is as evidence through public opinion surveys and, and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. Or I mean, like, because it certainly, so what, is it just bad media coverage? Yes. That, <laughs> that it, it certainly feels like this is more mainstream and more prominent than it ever was before. Well, this is the typical news story that I will get quoted in, is that they'll quote me saying, um, you know, conspiracy theories aren't going up and there's no evidence of it. And then the journalist will say something like, but it sure feels like it is. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it can feel like whatever you want it to feel like. But unless you have evidence, we shouldn't be claiming it. So if you want to say conspiracy theories are going up, what you have to be able to show is that between, between time one and time two, there's been some sort of measurable increase. But no one making the claim that they're going up has been able to show that. No one's shown it. All right, so I want because I, I feel like this is interesting. I just want to push back on this slightly, and you tell me where I'm wrong, because it's entirely likely that I'm wrong. But... um. You said it earlier, I don't know what the latest number is, but we've seen these polling numbers that saying 60, 70, 80% of the election, of Republicans think the election was stolen, right? Um, that has to be, I would think, a higher number than in previous political elections um, for uh, belief that the election was, uh, was objectively stolen. That's an increase in belief in conspiracy theories, right? I mean, I mean, maybe it's a very short one, short-term one, but it is one, right? So that's a short-term one that's very specific. Uh -huh. So generally when the claims are made, it's conspiracy theories across the board. Mm -hmm. But here we're talking about one. So let me give you um, some numbers on that. Normally going into any election, we get about 45% of Americans saying, um, if the other side wins, it will have been due to fraud. Mm -hmm. That's before the election. And that's equal numbers between Republicans and Democrats normally. And that was the same going into 2020. Hmm. After the election, normally, so I'll use 2012 as sort of a, a normal election. Sure. That number cuts in half because it's only the losers who think that they were cheated when we follow up right, right, right. afterwards. Because the winners, it was all hunky-dory. Now, this year is something very different. 
So oftentimes when journalists are talking about, you know, conspiracy theories are increasing, they're trying to imply that there's some sort of bottom-up process, Mm -hmm. that people are becoming more conspiratorial. In this case, you would have expected Republicans to think they were cheated um, because, one, they lost, but even more so because, two, Trump supporters in particular, I mean, Trump built a coalition of conspiracy-minded Republicans who were already prone to these sorts of beliefs, and he had cultivated this over a number of years. And three, most losing presidential candidates don't go on Twitter for two months saying that it was rigged and have the entire conservative, well, not the entire conservative, but a big chunk of the conservative media ecosystem pushing that. So that's why you got what you got there. Um, and, and it's fairly well explainable, but it's not a bottom-up, some of it's bottom-up process, which is normal, but a lot of it is a top-down process that is very specific to Trump. And even, here's the thing, I did polling on this prior to the election. So when we asked more specific claims about voter fraud, so for example, when we asked people um, if mail-in ballots was going to lead to fraud, because Trump had been saying it would, you had 70% of Republicans saying yes. When we asked people if the U.S. Post Office was going to rig the election and withhold ballots, because Democrats were saying this, mm-hmm. um, we had, um, let me see, I, I, I think the number here was like 50% of Democrats were, were, were <laughs> going along with that. Um, when we asked and, and, and you'll like this. If he loses the election, will will Donald Trump willingly leave office? Seventy-two <laughs> percent of Democrats said no. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I mean, going in, I mean, everybody had their cackles up, and and but a lot of this was sort of elite and media driven in the sense that people were believing what their partisan leaders were telling them, and they were responding to what the media was saying. So. The media was saying, is Donald Trump going to leave office or not? So, of course, Democrats were going to think he wasn't. So is there no uh, data suggesting, and I'm just legitimately curious, is there, I would think that once you believe one conspiracy theory, right, sort of like the Chestertonian thing where Cheston says, you know, once you, it's not that when you stop believing in God, you won't uh believe in anything it's that you'll, it, you you won't believe in nothing you'll believe in anything right it's like it seems to me once you can once you can take once you're red pilled as it were and you start buying one conspiracy theory you would think that's a gateway drug that gives you permission structure to buy all sorts of them you don't see any evidence that when people sort of start buying into one conspiracy theory it makes them less immune to other conspiracy theories this is a big argument amongst myself and my colleagues. So generally it's clear that, or this is what they say a lot, and it's sort of misleading, is that if, if when people believe one, they tend to believe others. Right. But that's sort of misleading. So what we find on surveys when we ask about, you know, 20 conspiracy theories, what we'll get is a range. Some people... Very few people will believe zero when we ask about 20 or more conspiracy theories, but you get people believing one, two, three, all the way up to all 20. So it's not that someone believes a conspiracy theory, then all of a sudden believes in every conspiracy theory. That just doesn't really happen. A better way to think about it is that people are sort of driven by their underlying dispositions. 
So if you have a worldview in which everything is dictated by shadowy conspiracies, then you're going to believe a lot of conspiracy theories. If you don't have that worldview, maybe you'll believe one or a few. And you're going to be resistant to new conspiracy theories when you're exposed to them. So that's why we consistently find, you know, very much a range. You know, and, and to think, I mean, next time you're allowed to get together with your family for Thanksgiving, you know, and you, you look around the table. Some of your uncles are going to believe every conspiracy theory out there, and some will believe one, or they really won't express belief in any. So it's better to think of it as a range, and it's also better to think of it in this way. It's, it's a small number of people who are responsible for a whole lot of the conspiracy theorizing. Right, right. Well, that's, that's true of so many things, that 80-20 split. You know, the mo- like, it's this tiny percentage of people who dominate Twitter, regardless of conspiracy theories, you know, all these kinds of things, right? And that's especially true with things like QAnon, because if you're believing in QAnon, well, of course you believe in other conspiracy theories, because all QAnon is, is a conglomeration of every other conspiracy theory. Right. Right. But just because you believe that the CIA might have had something to do with JFK in 1963 doesn't mean you'll believe QAnon. Right. But, I mean, again, I know you're pushing back on the the religion analog here, but there are times in American life and in other societies as well where you have, you know, we've had what four, three, four great awakenings, you know, where, where things are, where, where certain beliefs are contagious. And you're just saying that, that, that the, um, the general amount of conspiracy theory belief and practicing or practice in American life, absent the specific one about the election being stolen, that's being pushed by elites. But basically, there's a baseline that doesn't move very much from generation to generation. Um, it's tougher to go back generations because, I mean, we've only been polling on these things so long. Right. Um, and it'd be tough to get good estimates, you know, prior to, you know, certainly prior to the last decade. And then we can measure certain beliefs going back a few decades if we're talking about moon landing, aliens, JFK. Um so I, I'm hesitant to, to say, you know, it's the same now as it was in the 1700s or something. I mean, that would be almost impossible for me to say. Um, but let's take the most critical case, right? During the last year, everyone's shut in. We have lockdowns. Everyone's spending more time on the computer and more time on social media. We should have expected given what all the media is claiming, that it's going up on its own due to these bottom-up processes, plus you have these top-down influences, plus you've got everyone on social media, you should expect massive increases. Nothing. No increases. Even on beliefs in coronavirus conspiracy theories, stable from the very beginning in March when I started polling, through the summer, through October. Nothing. No increases in the mentality to see conspiracy theories. And a lot of other specific ones I polled on, no change. So, I mean, if we're not finding it now, when are we going to find it? Right? Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm just, here's why I'm kind of, I mean, I'm surprised. It's interesting. I'm glad to, I like it when I find out stuff that I don't think is what I expect it to be. But here's part of why I'm, I'm skeptical about some of this. Um, in 19, pick a year, 1980, um, your ability to peddle a major 
a truly pernicious conspiracy theory on a mainstream media outlet was fairly limited. Couldn't really, you know, the people who were going to get into, get beyond meet the press or the people who were going to have an op-ed in the New York Times, or the Washington Post, the people who were going to uh, be able to talk about stuff on Johnny Carson, there's the, the opportunities to reach a mass audience with this kind of thing were fairly limited. And, um, and you see, so you fast forward to today and the ability, you don't have to rely on old mimeograph newsletters, right? You, you can use Facebook, you can use Twitter, you can also go on primetime Fox shows or primetime CNN shows um, and call attention to conspiracy theories and have um, legitimizers um, who are respected by some number of people out there endorsing or confirming these things, you would just think that like any fad, you would see more fluctuation simply by virtue of the fact that so many more people are being exposed to something than they were 40 years ago. Why is that so wrong? Well, that's rosy hindsight. So yes, there's more information out there and we can get more stuff, but there's also more true stuff out there too. So we have access to the true things and we don't have to rely on village wisdom, perhaps the way we did in the past. So when you said 1980, I mean, immediately what came to mind was we were on the heels of the House Committee on Assassinations, which I think ruled that the JFK assassination was indeed a conspiracy. They don't know who did it. <laughs> um, I, I At the time, I was watching In Search Of, and that's where I first got into <laughs> conspiracy theories, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. I remember it well. Yeah, yeah and, and, and let me give you the biggest example, JFK conspiracy theories. Yeah. For four weeks after the assassination, 50, 5-0% of Americans believed it was a conspiracy. By 1975, it was 80%, and it stayed that way until the internet era, where it's come down now to about 42%. So it, people were able to talk and communicate these ideas. And, and I want to make an important point. Often the media coverage of this talks about spread. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to have spread for people to believe these things. Spread isn't the same as belief. I can share an idea with you and it doesn't mean you believe, you're going to agree with it or believe it. Right. And just the same, you and I could come to the same belief and never share it. I, we don't have to communicate it. So people could have just seen the assassination and said there's a conspiracy theory there without ever having to hear anyone tell them this, right? So, so as we're focusing on things like social media and information environments, we're sort of missing the fact that if people's worldviews lead them to see conspiracies everywhere, then the information environment doesn't matter that much. Okay, so I know you're not a psychologist or... Um, um, an anthropologist or anything, but um, how much of belief in conspiracy theories do you think has to do with essentially our lizard brains? That where in a natural environment, sort of in the savannas of Africa or wherever, we're pattern recognizing creatures and um, the patterns that we spot, if they give us an evolutionary advantage, we tend to repeat them. And this, because to me, I was saying this the other day, a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, there's an argument that atheists make about uh, creationists, where they say, um, God is in the gaps, right? And that 
every time you can't explain something from evolution, that must that's where God is 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 doing his handiwork. And there's some there's a anatomically similar form of argumentation that happens with conspiracy theories, which is just simply that anything that is inexplicable must be explained by human will somewhere. Some some actor who benefits from tragedy or bad events and they insert the conspiracy into there. Do you think that is a natural human um, thing? Um, or do you think that is nature and nurture, which it probably is? Um, wh- wh- what is your sort of, what is the demiurge of conspiracy theories as, in your mind? I mean, what, what is its foundation? So let me address the evolutionary part first. So I think there is something there. So imagine if you were walking through the field 10,000 years ago and you hear a rustle, a rustle in the brush. Right. If you assume it's the wind and it's the wind, you're fine. If you assume it's a tiger and it's the wind, you're fine, even though you run away. But if you assume it's the wind and it's a tiger, you get it eaten. Right. And so, your genes do not get passed on. <laughs> yeah. So if you are the suspicious one, then you're the one who's going to live on and have kids. Now, I think that's an interesting argument, and there are people who make it. It's tough to test, and what I would say in response to it is, well, people have varying levels of conspiracy theorizing. So where, how does the evolutionary argument explain that? I'm not, I'm right. not entirely sure yet. Now, in terms of psychological um, characteristics like patternicity or whatnot, I mean, there are a lot of studies that show that it plays a role. Mm. Right. But um, my concern with those findings is, is that patternicity doesn't get you to a conspiracy theory. I can see patterns and say, well, angels did it or God did it or karma did it. It doesn't necessarily bring me to, you know, the, the new the world Jews order did it. did it. Yeah. Right. So th- I have to be predisposed towards that certain kind of explanation for the patternicity to get me there mm. or else I would just be jumping to some other thing. Right. So it, it could be a combination of, of those, which it, mm-hmm. which it probably is. And, and I would also say this, it's, it's not like there's some factor. I mean, for a small number of people, it is because they'll believe in every conspiracy theory, but most people don't believe in every conspiracy theory. Most people are fairly picky and choosy. Right. So, so, <laughs> I mean, go back 10 years. The people who were believing that Barack Obama faked the birth certificate were not the same ones who think Bush blew up the Twin Towers. Right, right. So, so some of so his motivated pe- reasoning based on yeah, partisanship and whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, because people want to believe that their group is good, we're the victims, and the other group is the evil perpetrator. So, so, so people aren't just saying, oh my God, I don't understand something, so I'll believe anything to explain it, as they believe things that impugn people who they don't already like. Yeah. So what are, um, seems to me that, that there are some conspiracy theories, as we were saying, motivated reasoning based on partisan lines and whatnot. And there are some that are just sort of nonpartisan or transpartisan. And the vaccination stuff always struck me as one of those. There are prior to this moment where everything got so politicized because of the pandemic, but you know, five years ago, my sense was, is that there was probably a slightly bigger incidence of anti-vax people on the cultural left and then on the right, but it was close to parody as well. Are there, A, is that right? And B, are there other issues that sort of cut diagonally across left, right and apply to 
to both sides in somewhat kind of parody? Yeah, there's a lot. So uh, the sort of the rule of, of thumb is this, is that if, if partisan media and partisan elites aren't endorsing a conspiracy theory, and if the conspiracy theory isn't, isn't expressly blaming the other side for something, right? Because that theory hasn't been brought into partisan conflict. Right. So it's, it's not like, you know, Republicans are flocking to faked moon theories. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> You right. know, be, because uh, it's not like their leaders are talking about it. And it's not like it's part of their identity or it's, it's not saying, you know, Democrats fake the moon landing. So for that, we, we, we generally find that those are even between both sides. So the only places where you really find partisan differences are one where it's accusing the other side or it's one side's elites are, are really endorsing it. So I, I think a good way to think about it is you, you separate the partisan conspiracy theories from the nonpartisan conspiracy theories. And this gets to the asymmetry argument. There are people out there who say, well, Democrats are not as prone to conspiracy theorizing as Republicans. Well, sure, Democrats aren't as prone to believing in conspiracy theories that accuse Democrats as right, Republicans right. are. But it, but when you get those conspiracy theories that are off the beaten track and aren't really partisan in any way, then, then they're the same. Right. And also, as you pointed out in the last time you were on, there are some liberal or Democratic conspiracy theories that liberals and Democrats do not like hearing being labeled as conspiracy theories, right? Billionaires run everything or the Koch brothers run everything. That kind of stuff is a conspiracy theory, but it it's more permissible to say than the Rothschilds run everything, right? Yeah. And it, 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 so when I have this conversation, either with my colleagues on the left or with journalists, it, 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 you know, anytime you point out that, you know, this conspiracy theory is believed widely by the left, they say, well, that doesn't count. Right. Or the person who was expressing that conspiracy theory really meant something else. I mean, this comes up a lot with Bernie Sanders when he's like, the 1% have rigged everything against you. Right. And I said, that's, that's conspiracy theories, pointing out a group operating in secret to do bad things. They've rigged the entire economy and political system. And, you know, there is no epistemological body that says that what he says is really true. Right. So they have to do apologetics and rehabilitate it and say, well, he really means that there's inequality. Okay. Well, you can guess what he means to your term blue. Right. But, right. but I can only go by what he says. And this right. is what he's this is what he's engaging in. So I, you know, I should have had you do this at the very top of it, um, just because um, for the new listener, they might not define a conspiracy theory. So a conspiracy theory is an accusatory perception in which you have a small group of usually powerful people operating in secret for their own benefit against the common good in, in a way that undermines our bedrock ground rules against the widespread use of force and fraud. And further, this theory has not been accepted as most likely true by the appropriate epistemological bodies with open data and open evidence that people can refute if they want to. That's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> How many times have you had to say that? <laughs> over and over and over. So it's just sort of, I've got a tattooed on my, on my arm now. I was going to say. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, um, 
and again, it's non-pejorative. The conspiracy theories are for losers thing. Um, if you, and I, I have my baggage about uh, sort of Theodore Adorno and Richard Hofstetter's use of that stuff for the status class anxiety explanations of things. At the same time, I believe that status class anxiety is a real thing. And um, do you see, you know, belief, if you were, you were going to do sort of a CAT scan of the body politic, do you see belief in conspiracy theories sort of lighting up as certain groups move, not just Republican Democrat, but like certain groups or professions or demographics moving from ascendant to descendant or um, anything like that? I mean, it's sort of like the the cultural, the Luddites, you know, because the, the mills come along, all of a sudden they're losers and socioeconomically is that do you see explosions or sparks of of belief in conspiracy theories tracking that kind of thing? That's tough to 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 say because you know I hear the argument all the time like periods of social change will lead to more conspiracy theories. Right. But it's like we're always experiencing social change. There's always a winner and a loser and there's always conspiracy theories and they all seem to be you know as as a group, conspiracy theories seem to be about level over time. So I guess I would agree in the sense that the people accusing, doing the a accusing and really feeling it may change over time as their circumstances change. You know, like we used to be running things and we were, you know, in the know and now we're on the outside and it's because this group, you know, rigged things against us. I, I can understand that. But then that group who's now on the inside would be like, everything's great. Right, right. <laughs> Finally, grownups are running everything. So, but like, I mean, one way to think about this, you know, historically, um, populist movements, particularly like the, the ones we all know from the 19th century, populism is in some ways inherently conspiratorial because it says our group is getting screwed. There are power, powerful forces at work that are denying us our righteous justice our feelings are more important than your facts. You know, my favorite line I quote all the time from William Jennings Bryan, where he says, the people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. Um, <laughs> and um, so that social unrest point that you're making, you would, I would certainly expect, and, and the populace of the 19th century, the know-nothings, all those guys, had some bat guano crazy conspiracy theories, right? About the Brits and the Jews and all these people running everything. Um, could you look at it that way and say that, you know, you look for populism and wherever there's populism, there's going to be a, a flourishing of conspiracy theories? So this is something I've been working on quite a bit lately. And we have a, a, a paper that's, that's forthcoming in the next, next few months. Um, populism and conspiracy thinking very much overlap. Right. Because, you know, if you if you think about the definition of conspiracy theory, it's a small group operating in secret against us. Right. Populism is you have these corrupt elites who are working against us, the good people. Right. They're not exactly the same, but they're in a Venn diagram. They really overlap. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they also overlap with something else, too, which is Manichaean thinking. Right. It's like right. this seeing politics as a battle, not between competing interests who might want different things and have to negotiate, but between a good group and an evil group. And, of mm -hmm. course, we're the good group. And the, and so populism, Manichaean thinking, and conspiracy thinking, all on our opinion surveys when we measure these, they overlap incredibly mm -hmm. well. 
Interestingly, they don't really map onto left-right, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat considerations. It's its own thing, mm-hmm. right? And in what I call that triumvirate of populism, Manichaean, and conspiracy thinking is anti-establishment views. Right. So like you and I live in this world of the establishment where everyone we talk to is sort of fairly well ingrained into the political system. And, you know, you could see where people land between left and right. You're on the far right, you're far left, you're moderate. But most people don't align neatly in that way. They don't have constrained ideologies and they don't even like their party that much. Right. I mean, go, go talk to your Uber driver about politics and you'll find that they don't sound like a congressperson in the sense that I have six issues that all go together right. and I'm going to push this. Um, their issues are going to be all over the place. And oftentimes what's undergirding some of that is, you know, they don't have a strong ideology. They're sort of outside of normal political discourse. And their view is, you know, it's all corrupt. The elites are screwing us again, and that's just how the system works. It's all rigged. And I can't show this because polls only go back so far again, but I would say that at least in the last several decades, it's probably stable. I mean, Hofstadter found instances of this. Political uh, scientist Robert Lane in the 60s found instances of this where you know, you and I and academics, we pay attention to elite rhetoric. Mm. But that's not the same as what the real folk out there are are, are talking and thinking about in politics. Right. right. And, 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 and here's what happens is that that stuff, that anti-establishment stuff can be activated by strategic politicians into politics essentially pulling that dimension of thought into the left-right dimension. Think about what Trump did. He didn't chase after your normal Republican the way Jeb Bush and Rubio Mm -hmm. and the other candidates did in 2016. He used conspiracy rhetoric, Manichaean rhetoric and populist rhetoric, to get these sort of other voters to play on these concerns that weren't getting addressed by other establishment candidates. So that leaves us with... um I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to eat off your plate and use all of your social scientific <laughs> lingo, but I, it, it feels like it leaves us with this giant steaming bag of crap called the current state of the GOP, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Where some members of the GOP, and I'm talking about members of GOP. I'm not talking about GOP voters. I'm talking about the elites, yes. right? The in many ways the the new establishment, a non-trivial number of them actually believe all the conspiracy stuff. And, and I say all the, because I mean, specifically election was stolen and dominion and yada, yada, yada. Although I do think one of the really glorious things about late stage capitalism is the power of a lawsuit from a big corporation to shake some people <laughs> out of their conspiracy yeah. theories. But, but, um, uh, uh, and then there's a much larger number of people who are so afraid of the toxified base of the party that Trump has toxified with conspiracy theories that they're going to play along. Right. So do you, are there examples of big institution? I mean, have we seen something like this before where a large, important mainstream institution has flipped a switch and bought into some conspiracy theory stuff and then been able to deprogram relatively quickly, or is it a generational thing? 
Do you have to find new people? I mean, what 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 is your prognosis for all that? This isn't something we've seen lately. Um, so we are sort of in new territory for our lifetimes because normally you don't have presidents doing what Trump did. Right. Right. I mean, the analog on the other side is Bernie Sanders and the Democrats had to coalesce against him because he was doing the same thing. Right. Um, they had to coalesce against him um, in both 2016. And, and it was already coalesced against him because there was really only one candidate running against him in 2016, Hillary Clinton. But in 2020, they sort of had to finagle um, and, and people had to drop out in order to consolidate mainstream support against the more conspiracy minded uh you know, in, in more radical politics folks in their party. So that's how the Democrats did it. Mm. Um, and, and they will make concessions to that, you know, that wing of the party. Um, but he, here I'm not sure. And, and we have been noticing it is a serious conundrum for <laughs> that the GOP finds itself in because you don't know what Trump's going to do next. They're sort of walking on eggshells with him. Is he going to start a media company? Is he going to is he going to begin just? Tr- is he going to start a third party and right. siphon off these people? Is he going to uh, work against um, other Republican candidates? Are Republicans going to have to continue to kiss his ring? We don't know. But these people have been activated into mainstream politics. These anti-establishment folks, and that is sort of what has made a lot of this so toxic. Right. And and now they're there and Republicans are sort of like either piss them off and lose them or find a way to placate them, which could either be do what they want and become a bunch of conspiracy cranks right. or find some side payment to, you know, give them just enough to make them happy without appearing like a, a, a nutcase. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is I mean, this is something I've been struggling and writing about a bit lately, and it, it is a real conundrum as a pure punditry matter. The problem is, is that Trump has basically created himself and his biggest supporters into what we would normally call wedge issues, right? Just they divide their own coalition and unite the opposing coalition. <laughs> and Politics 101 says, no, you want to divide the other coalition and unite yours and then take, you know, the 20 percent that you shook off from the other side. And instead, that's why they've done it the other way, which is why they lost Georgia, why we're seeing this craziness with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um but what worries me is, and I, I'm struggling for the best comparison or analogy for this. It's a little, I mean, like the Nation of Islam was never that big a deal on, in left-wing politics in the Democratic Party. Every now and then it kind of threatened to be, and then, you know, grown-ups would sort of hold it at bay. But there was always this sort of thing that you weren't allowed to really tell the truth about how terrible Louis Farrakhan was and, and all that kind of stuff on the left. And in part, it was because the left sort of created it as a as an identity politics thing that who are you to question their religion, their faith, faith is out of bounds, plus they're black and they're, you know, and there's all the identity politics stuff there. And if you listen to what some of the things that Tucker Carlson is saying, if you listen to some of the stuff that the sort of anti anti QAnon people are saying, it feels like they're trying to turn them into something like the right-wing Nation of Islam or science, Church of Scientology, this thing where who are you to criticize what they believe, belief is sacred, and make them part of the conservative coalition in ways that I think is suicidal because I will not be part of any coalition 
that believes in that believes Hillary Clinton cut off the face of a young girl and wore it as a mask. I mean, that just seems to me sort of like first principle kind of thing. Um, so I guess part of the question is sort of at an institutional level, how do you debathify, which you've addressed a little bit, but also at a personal level, if you must run into people all the time, I can't imagine the people who come up to you after college campus talks who want to say, yeah, that was really interesting, but have you heard about the lizard people? Um, how do you deprogram or persuade a loved one or a friend who believes some of this stuff? Do you have some heuristic? Do you have like, here are the five questions that you should ask? Any of that kind of stuff? Um, no. And I'm the, abs <laughs> I'm the absolute wrong person to ask about this because I have family members who are into some of this stuff. So if I, of all people, can't deprogram people I'm related to, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, this is the thing is that if someone's into QAnon, it's an expression of deeper psychological and identities, psychological issues and, and personal identities. And you're not going to change that with a link or a fact check. Okay. Yeah. That's going to be a much longer conversation. Um, but here, here's the good news with the QAnon folks. As much as the media says they're big and getting bigger, and that was the, your median headline over the summer, they're small and not getting bigger. I mean, when we ask direct questions, um, you know, are you a believer in QAnon? In 2019, it was 5%. Um, agree or disagree, I'm a believer in QAnon by October 2020. Strongly agree or agree, 7%. So that's statistically indistinguishable. No movement over you know, between 20, 2018, 2019, 2020. So no change. And you will see these big numbers in the media trotted out like, oh, the latest poll shows it's 30% or half the Republican Party is now QAnon. It's because they're not measuring QAnon. And many mm -hmm. of the people they're saying believe in QAnon stuff will never have even heard of QAnon. Right. Now, here's what's going on, that, that some of those polls are asking double or triple-barreled questions. Like, do you believe in a conspiracy by deep state elites and QAnon to hurt Donald Trump? And right, right, sort right. of like saying, do you like vanilla chocolate and ice cream? Yes or no? <laughs> right, 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 right. And that's why they get these big numbers. And then the other thing that some polls do is that they'll ask about a belief that has to do with QAnon. That's part of the QAnon community, but probably exists outside of it and long pre-exists QAnon. So if you say, is there right. massive elite sex trafficking rings? You'll mm -hmm. get 30% saying yes. Right. But so, so let me give you the good news and the bad news. Good news is QAnon, people who actually follow QAnon and believe in it is, is really small. And it's one of the fringier things out there. It's on par mm -hmm. with lizard people, which is like 4%. Mm -hmm. And moon landing, you know, fake moon landings was like 6%. The bad news is that some of the conspiracy theories that QAnon engages in, which it didn't create, but simply adopted, like government and Hollywood elite sex trafficking or child sex trafficking rings, um, vast overestimation of the amount of child sex trafficking. Those beliefs are incredibly widespread. So you're mm -hmm. looking at, you know, 30% of the country who thinks Hollywood and political elites are doing sex trafficking rings. Now, that's not QAnon's fault. QAnon didn't create it. And mo I would say most of the people who believe that never even heard of QAnon. 
you can right. go back in history and, and this belief has existed for a long time. Like when you and I were growing up in the 80s, it was, oh, satanic, you know, cults are molesting kids and they've taken over the local police departments and they're infiltrating the government and we have to fight these Satanists. This has been around for a long time in one form or another. I mean, some of this stuff goes back millennia. Even the idea that there's a pedophile deep state working against the government, that's the plot of Oliver Stone's JFK. But it, this is matching with people's priors about how the world works. And that's the scary part. This stuff is out there. And and just getting onto the child sex trafficking part, because that's a big thing with QAnon, we asked a question in our October poll where we said, do you think the amount of child sex trafficking is, a, is about 300,000 children being trafficked right now, a lot less or a lot more, um, or about... 300,000. And we got more than 50% of the country saying it's about 300,000 or a lot more. That number is completely fake. It's been fact-checked right. as four Pinocchios, I think a couple times by the Washington Post, but that number has been trotted out a whole bunch of times by people in Congress and interest groups and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So they have created this panic out there. Yeah. And you've seen many members of government who have pushed this. Oh, we got to watch out because the child sex driving. Every time you go to Vegas, they have the posters everywhere, and you know, yeah. any on every airport, watch out for sex trafficking. But it's, I mean, the only appropriate level of sex trafficking is zero. But it doesn't help right. anyone to get the number wrong or to vast, vastly overestimate it, and then to come up with these crazy fantasies about how big it is and who's engaged in it. And and this is a major problem. And and I think this problem has been pushed by both politicians who use this as a cudgel to sometimes beat their opponents. Like what did, down here in Florida, what was Trump saying about Biden? Oh, they were putting out stuff saying he was soft on child molesting or child molester stuff. This was going around. Right. You've saw, seen this in other races, too. You know, the other party is soft on pedophilia. You know, so it, it, if you want to accuse the other side of being the worst thing possible, you can do it. Um, and that's why this keeps getting brought up. And you also have government agencies who are like, we rescued hundreds of kids from sex trafficking. And it turns out, you know, maybe one kid was being sex trafficked, but the, the other kids were just misplaced or, or something like that right, in the computer. Right. Or go up to just up the road from me in Florida here. Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, busted in the biggest sex trafficking sting ever in Florida. The next day, the prosecutor sheepishly says, there will be no charges of sex trafficking, and we've only arrested the women who are supposedly the sex trafficking victims. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to go back to this religion thing just for two seconds. Um, the The... So my friend, my friend and colleague, Tim Carney, wrote this book, uh, uh, Alienated America. And part of his argument, which is part of some of the stuff I've written in, in my book and some of the stuff that my our friend and colleague Yuval Levin has written about, is that, um, that politics is sort of filling a place in people's lives that was once filled by local community and religion, particularly religious community and whatnot. And, and Tim points out that Trump's strongest, most, most uh, enthusiastic demographic base of support was among white, self-declared evangelicals who did not go to church regularly, right? Um, 
And he went and did all those fantastic, leg, you know, uh, grassroots reporting where communities that had high levels of social capital um, as measured by things like church attendance, engagement, engagement with the community, you know, volunteerism, all that kind of stuff were much more immune to Trump than people who didn't have that stuff. And there's been studies about well, that was one of the reasons why one of the explanations, I should say, for why Utah was so anti-Trump yet so conservative is that high levels of civic capital, civil capital, um, social capital and and religious capital and all these kinds of things give you a certain amount of buffer. Do you find is there anything in the data that says that not necessarily denominationally, but in terms of if you have more religious commitment as met demonstrated by participate or actual participation in religious affairs, um, that that makes you more immune to buying into some of these things? Or is it, is, is just, that's just not a variable that really matters. So it's really tough to tease some of this stuff out. So if we were just talking about either voting for Trump or supporting for Trump, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Right. And once you get to the general election, then partisanship swamps sort everything. of becomes, yeah, swamps everything out. And if you look through the literature, you, you'll find studies as well. We find people who, you know, have what they would shorthand call sexism. We're more likely to vote for Trump or, you know, white racial resentment, you know, racial resentment, don't like Muslims, don't like immigration. So all sorts of factors, but all things that Trump was sort of hitting on with his rhetoric, right? All drive it. What I've tried to do in some of my research is put all those factors together. And what you find is that there is sort of a Trump profile of people. And I'm not saying that they're racist, sexist, xenophobes, but what I am saying is they have slightly elevated levels of these things on surveys. Um, but they all go together. So Trump was chasing an identity of, of people with these things that he hit on. In terms of the religious thing, I mean, that argument makes sense to me. How you could tease it apart you know, with quantitative data would be a little more difficult because measuring religion is sometimes very, given all the denominations and whatnot. Right, right, um, right. But, you, you know, if you think about it, if you're someone who's going to church all the time, you may be more into the moral stuff and you see what Trump's been doing. You'd be like, ah, eh, maybe, you know, I'll vote for him because he's a Republican and I'm a Republican, but not because he's such a great messenger of God. But there may be other ones who right. are more, more have the identity and then can stomach it and say, well, he's a flawed vessel, is what I think they say. But here's the thing, too, is I think there are a lot of churches that were like, you know, sort of stayed away from Trump or like, he's all right. But, you know, but there are other ones. If you watch these TV evangelists, I mean, they were laying hands on him. They were explicitly supporting right. him. Um, and they were mimicking a lot of the things that Trump said. So, um. I mean, I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's it's probably working a lot, a lot sure. of ways for 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 different people. If we were to talk about QAnon, like stepping away from Trump, and just talk about QAnon specifically, what mm -hmm. we're finding in our in our research is that the people who support QAnon, it's not really a political or or it's not really a partisan or ideological thing in the way we normally think about mm -hmm. it. Because once you include dark personality traits, religiosity, and con underlying conspiracy thinking in our in our analyses, um, conservatism and republicanism drop out. Mm -hmm. So, um, where where what we find is sort of people who are conspiracy thinkers who see themselves as religiously oriented, 
and also are sort of narcissistic and psych, you know, I don't want to say they're crazy sociopaths, but they're, they're slightly higher on these dark personality traits than your average person. Those are the ones who are buying into, um, into QAnon. So just to give you one poll and this will you know, upset everybody, but you know, in 2019, Emerson college did a, did a poll and they asked people, are you a believer in QAnon nationwide? They got back 5%. It was 6% of Republicans and 6% of Democrats. Yet the hmm. pollster said the far right conspiracy QAnon. What's far right? Yeah. <laughs> There's right, nothing right, far right. right there. And this is sort of continued. So sometimes you could find a little bit more on the right, a little bit more on the left. But it's once you get into the data, it's not it's not like I'm like, you know, I, I really like George George W. Bush. Then I got into Ronald Reagan and then uh, satanic baby eaters. that doesn't work like that so it's not far right and many of the things we're calling far right are not right in any sense so this these labels are just are just messed up what we're talking about is a completely different dimension of of political thought but you would think once trump at minimum refused to denounce QAnon, right and and as he became sort of central to some of their weird theories about what was going on you would think that that partisan breakdown would have changed, wouldn't you? But here's the thing is that it didn't go up. So so uh-huh. when we polled on it in October and we had people agree or disagree with I'm a believer in QAnon, we, all, we still only got 7%. I think yeah. it was slightly more Republican than Democrat at that time. But, it, but you had two things going on at the same time. You had Trump saying, well, they're sort of good people. Um, but on the other hand, you also had the mainstream media and particularly the liberal media just bashing on this constantly. So there was two separate flows of, of, you know, of valence there. But even then the the change was that big. So when I say that Trump can convince people of conspiracy theories, it's, he can convince people who trust him of conspiracy theories are probably already inclined to believe. And most Republicans aren't inclined to believe that there's a secret agent named QAnon giving out secret clues. Just the same, Trump couldn't convince people that Ted Cruz's dad really killed Kennedy in 1963. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> so the, um, the, the, and you, you were not worried. I mean, like, and I must've written a dozen columns at one point or another about the, you know, the, the shy Tory effect and all that kind of stuff. There is no shy nut job effect. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, particularly if you thought there were, if you saw that world through a Manichaean worldview that there were, you know, vampiric Jewish sex traffickers out there who were murdering people willy nilly. Um, maybe you wouldn't want to tell a pollster that you were in on the, that you knew about the conspiracy. Um, you don't think there's any, any of that in the data? No, I mean, with a lot of conspiracy theory, I mean, some of the numbers we get back are so big that it's like, who's, yeah. who's hiding this. Right. And because I mean, for some conspiracy theories where you would expect that effect, like uh, Holocaust denial and things like that, right. we're still getting decent right. numbers. Yeah. and um, Or indecent numbers yeah. if we want to be normative. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> you still have people more, you know, very proud to admit it. And, right, right. And, um, but some of the psychological characters, so if you're a narcissist and that's what's underpinning your view in some of these things, then... I'm right, and I want people to know it. They did fake some of the numbers in the Holocaust. Right. Right? So, 
um, I don't think that it's a, a, a measurement effect that we're running into. Um, I, I think the no- numbers are sort of what they are. I'm sure there's some amount of error, perhaps going in both in both directions, and that's going to be the same. But I, I just don't see people um, people really hiding this. Okay, so again, I stipulated that that you do broad data trends and all these kinds of things, and you're not a psychologist and all the rest. But one of the things that drives me kind of crazy about the way a lot of journalists and even some serious intellectual historians talk about the right, which is one of the things I'm interested in, you know, for a long time now, is they treat adherence of certain points of view as sort of static over time, that, 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 you know, the John Birchers were always a part of the conservative movement and they've never gone away and their numbers have never shrunk or grown or any of that kind of stuff. And it's just not true as, as a matter of broad analysis, nor is it true of individual people. And for example, and this is what I was wanted to get to is like, like Rudy Giuliani wasn't always bat guano crazy. I, I mean, just, I, I'm going to stipulate that. I know people who work with him. I've grew up in New York city he was not the kind of guy 30 years ago that would have believed that uh, most of our ballots are counted overseas, <laughs> um, which he's expressly said, you know, and um, despite the fact that we actually had video of the ballots being counted in America at the voting precincts or whatever. So is there, is there a theory about why some people over time become, you know, I know the plural of anecdote is not data, but why do some people who didn't believe this kind of garbage for most of their lives or significant chunks of their lives, why do they descend into it? Is there a broad thematic explanation for it other than the sort of feeling like you're the loser? So it's like you said, it's tough to extrapolate from Giuliani to normal people because Giuliani is, you know, an elite. He's part of the Trump coalition and he's got to be strategic in what he does. Yeah. And he's a day drinker, but that's a different Um, issue. (laughs) (laughs) um, For the normal person, I mean, you can read a lot of accounts of, you know, oh, cousin Johnny, you know, he used to be normal and now he's QAnon. Well, some right. of what is going on there with those accounts is that you weren't paying attention to Cousin Johnny. He had his views, which he may not have talked about too much, and those views might not have had a name at that point. Yeah. But he had the underlying worldview in which there's all sorts of bad stuff going on and everything is fake, and you know Johnny was probably prone to believe anything. And then once Johnny mm-hmm. starts expressing this... In particular, you have a name to put on, oh, that's QAnon, and Johnny's this. He must have fallen down the rabbit hole into this thing. And you don't think that happens? I mean, there are people who have agency who go fall in to, like, join the clan, and then they, like, oh, my God, what have I done? And they, they change, right? Sure, I mean, it, it happens, right? But I, I think the way it's getting put out there is, like, Johnny was normal, and then he became QAnon. And, and, and I think a lot of these people are sort of disposed to these beliefs to begin with, and people aren't noticing that disposition. So they wind up blaming, oh, he saw a tweet and then fell down the rabbit hole, right? When, of course, people could get radicalized from being normal, but it takes quite a lot for a normal person 
who isn't disposed, but there are people who are clearly disposed. And the thing is, there's always been cults and clans and religions and all sorts of things that pull people in, and sometimes they get radicalized and whatnot. That's there's nothing new um, there, in you know, in particular. So, all right. So I, mean, I know we've we've gone about an hour, and I do, and I for listeners who never heard our first conversation, I did cover some of this stuff, some other stuff that people are probably interested in hearing about. Um, particularly like international comparisons, but let's just sort of close on that. This is not a uniquely American thing, right? This is, as we were talking about patternicity and the human brain and all these kinds of things, lots of society, all societies have this to one extent or another, right? Um, Let's just talk about how we rank internationally or how this plays out on an international scale. Americans are exceptional in many ways, but our conspiracy theories are not one of them. So (laughs) when we poll uh, 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 across countries, we find that, you know, obviously there are some beliefs that are believed more here than in other places, but other places believe some conspiracy theories more than we do. Right. Right. Because we, you made the point that we went to the moon, so we're going to have a lot more moon landing related conspiracy theories than some country that didn't, right? Or JFK was murdered here. He was our president. So people are going to care about that kind of stuff more than someplace else. Yeah. So I think almost 20% of France think, well, you fake the moon landing, but only 6% of Americans do. Right. It's a point of national pride. Um, So it's it's tough to make these comparisons across country because it's going to be different beliefs, right, that are going to be relevant at different times to different sets of people. Um, but, But we're not the most. And if you were to think about, you know, are we really more conspiratorial than, say, people in Cuba or North Korea or Russia or some other places, given the circumstances, then the answer is, you know, probably, you know, probably not. Right. So, but I would say we're probably on par with places like Germany and the UK and, and, and other uh, similar European countries. Um, and then there was the, there was, all right. So the last, my very last question, what popularly described, conventionally described conspiracy theory, do you actually think has some merit? <laughs> That's just, I think a lot have some merit, but I don't believe them. Uh-huh. And this is where I sort of, I, I stake out a middle ground and I encourage others to do the same, is I don't run around saying your conspiracy theory is false and it should be denigrated and you're crazy. I say, you know, until the appropriate experts have investigated it with open data and evidence, it might be worth investigating, but it doesn't mean we should believe it at any given time, mm-hmm. right? So in that sense, I give everybody an out, but I say at the same time, you shouldn't be believing it in it. So, oh, but, but clearly, there are some that you don't have to do this very polite, decent, <laughs> classical, liberal, open-minded thing. I don't have to like <laughs> wait for. Uh, all the evidence to come in to believe that Frazzle Drip, which is this conspiracy that Hillary and Huma cut off the face of a small child and wore it as a mask to scare <laughs> the child, <laughs> um, is, you know, it was like, well, we've got to hear both sides, you know. We, no, I don't say this. that. <laughs> yeah, so. No, I just say I, I don't believe that. And, and, you know, there hasn't been any, you know, verified evidence put forward to say I should. Right, right, right. And, you know, end of the story. If I can get one comment before we go, I don't know if you had another question. So in the news coverage the last couple of days, I'll just pick on the New York Times, but they had their disinformation reporter saying perhaps uh, Biden administration should set up a reality czar. I don't want to justify QAnon or anything like that. 
And I don't want to say that these beliefs are okay. We should push back against them with data and evidence and argument, not with truth commissions, not with reality czars, and not with government force. If, If there is a concern about people committing violence, then that should be investigated, clearly. But we should not be investigating people for their conspiracy beliefs, because there will be mission creep. I mean, you can say, oh, we're concerned about QAnon right now, but it's going to become some other conspiracy and other other conspiracy, and then they'll be investigating anyone who believes anything that the current administration doesn't like. Um, So this is very dangerous territory, and it seems like even the mainstream outlets are like, hey, this sounds like a good thing. Yeah, Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm very scared of that. And, and I think we all need to push back against this because conspiracy theories can be bad. People shouldn't believe them until they're shown to be true. Um, but it doesn't mean we should have government enforcing some anti-conspiracy orthodoxy. Yeah, fair enough. All right. And with that, uh, Joseph Yuzinski, thank you so much for coming back on. I would expect nothing less than what i've heard from you as the as the lord high (laughs) ruler of the lizard people so thanks thanks very much you are very welcome okay so uh uh professor uzinski i I, his name terrifies me for some reason um for mispronouncing and uh we had to apologize to him in the green room beforehand because when jack butler was on uh the show a couple weeks ago um he just nonchalantly and without a moment's hesitation referred to him as Douglas Urbanski, um, which is not his name. So anyway, uh, he has left the, the the studio, as it were, and um, it's it's always fun to talk to him about this stuff because it 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 pushes back against you know one of the major sort of just sort of everybody knows it's true kind of modes of analysis that turns out not to be true. And I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I still, I, I'm, I'm, I still struggle with this idea that somehow having so much light shined on, on conspiracy theories um, and conspiratorial thinking and, and having elite institutions welcome the conspiratorially minded um, you would think that that would have an effect on the numbers that he's talking about. But, you know, obviously, I think he's 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 honest and 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 diligent guy, and he's probably right. It's just it's counterintuitive to me, and I think it's interesting. Um, anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and um, we have some fun things to announce next week, so stay tuned, and uh, be sure to tune in for the solo ruminant. Uh, tomorrow, I don't know exactly what I'll talk about, but you guys should always send me, um, suggestions. Uh, you know, my email is Jonah at the dispatch.com. And yes, that's really my email. It's not what, you know, um, it's not a conspiracy theory. And, uh, other than that, I'll just see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>